Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. If you have your Bibles, please read along with me. And if you plan to, uh, if you really like New Philly and you want to keep coming out, be sure to bring your Bibles with you. Because we think the Bible is pretty important here. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Who is He talking about there? Well, if you look at verse 13, it says, uh, His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is the beloved Son of God? Jesus. So it's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Amen. You know, a lot of people in the world today, they don't believe in God. Meaning, they don't put their trust in God. They may actually believe that there is a God, but they, they may define themselves as an agnostic. This is a person that doesn't deny that there is a God, so therefore they're not an atheist. But at the same time, they don't really believe, they don't put their trust in God. And many agnostics and atheists will often say, well, I'll believe in God when I see God. Let me see God and I will believe. I'll become a Christian if you, Anthony, if you, Megan, can show me God. Let me see God with my two eyes and I'll believe. And they think that seeing is believing. Well, if they want to see God, the question is, what does God look like? Does He look like us, or does He have no form whatsoever? Uh, what does God think about? Does God have emotions? If God could talk, what would He say? And there's all these questions about God. And they claim, if I can see Him, then I will believe in Him. But the Bible says here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to see God? Well, the Bible says... If you want to see God, well, here He is. Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what He thinks about? Look at Jesus. You want to know whether God has emotions or not? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. 
2,000 years ago, when his disciples had not quite figured out who Jesus was, they asked Jesus the same thing. They said, Jesus, we believe all these things you're teaching us, but check this out. Just show us God. Show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, how can you ask me to show you the Father? You know how long I've been with y'all? And then he said in John 14, 9, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's like me saying, if you come up to me and you're like, man, no, let's say you go, go up to uh, Sonia and you're like, man, I think Pastor Christian is so cool. Man, Pastor Christian is so hip. Man, I wish I could spend some time with Pastor Christian. And Sonia is like, hey, hey, hey. If you have seen me, you have seen Pastor Christian. All right? That don't make no sense, right? And none of us can say that, but Jesus did. Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. You want to know what the invisible God is like? Just listen to what I'm saying. Look at what I'm doing. Jesus is perfect theology with two feet. If you want to know what is on the Father's heart, the best thing you can do is look at the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I only do that which I see my Father doing. You know, Jesus spent over 90% of his public ministry not preaching, not teaching, but it was healing the sick. You know that? I mean, Jesus could have opened up a hospital. I mean, he has sick people coming by the thousands. He'll go into a town. He'll heal a couple of sick people. And everybody and their mama will show up with their diseases. Limping and coughing. And he will heal them all. Jesus spent a large part of his ministry healing the sick. That shows us what's on the heart of the Father in heaven. And a lot of people will actually say, well, you know, well, well, Jesus has changed his mind. God the Father is not interested in healing the sick anymore. So, you know, that's why he gave us science. So that, you know, we can have medicine. We can have hospitals. You know? So, you know, we don't need, we don't, you know, God's changed his mind. He doesn't really want to, he's not interested in healing the sick anymore. But the word of God says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? If you have a disease that's supposedly incurable it's only incurable by the doctors that you have seen but there is no disease before jesus that is incurable jesus never goes that's incurable (laughs) there's no record in the gospel that jesus ever did that jesus just healed them all there is no disease that does not bow their knee To the name of Jesus. Well, you might be like, well, that's all great. If I see Jesus, then I see God. All right, that's great. But that doesn't really help me. Because today, in the year 2011, I can't physically meet Jesus. Is there some phone number that I can call and set up an appointment with him? I can't meet Jesus. So how can I see God when I can't see Jesus? 
And in regards to that situation, with, to our situation, Jesus already spoke into it. He said in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now he's talking about physical sight here. Because you have physically seen me, you have believed. But he says, blessed are those who have not physically seen and yet have believed. Now, I understand we can't physically see Jesus today. But we can still see Jesus. You know why? Because God is living. Jesus is not somewhere hiding in a closet, stuck in some tomb. Jesus is living. The God... The Bible always describes God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the living God. And Jesus is still living today. And we can get plenty of glimpses of him. Let me submit to you an idea. Although we can't physically see Jesus today, our generation has the ability to see Jesus more clearly than the generation that walked with him 2,000 years ago. Let me try to prove my point. Number one, we have the Gospels. The first four books of the Bible, which we call the Gospels, it gives us a very clear picture of who Jesus is, what he did, what he said, how he responded. We even get glimpses of his prayer life. What a wonderful account of Jesus. You know, the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus 2,000 years ago, they didn't have access to these four books. They only had access to their experience of Jesus in the physical moments that they enjoy with him. So that means that they didn't have access to Jesus' private conversations with Peter, John, and James. They didn't have access to the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't have access to all that. They only had access to what they saw and what they, what they experienced themselves. But with the Gospels, we're able to get this multi-witness. And we're not just talking about just a few of the apostles that, that gave eyewitness account. We're talking Luke went around and he interviewed women. And back in the Roman uh, culture, a woman's uh, witness, eyewitness account was worthless in the court of law. Right? But Luke realized that God doesn't seem to think so. Because who, who does Jesus appear to first after he resurrects? He appears to the women. So the women come out the tomb. They go up to the men and they're like, we saw Jesus. Je- the tomb is empty. Jesus is probably resurrected just like he said he would. You know, and all the men are going, what are those crazy women talking about? They, they, what are you talking And they did not believe what the women had said. But Luke understood that God values a woman's testimony. So he interviewed plenty of women. Now, how did he get, you know, things like Mary's song? You know? He had to interview Mary. You know, it's not like Peter knew Mary's song, you know. When, when Mary got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she sang a song. Yeah. And uh, Luke somehow got it. All right. <laughs> I don't know if Mary had a really great memory or she journaled or 
or uh, Holy Spirit inspired it. Hey, we don't know. Okay, we don't know what, we're, how, but we're glad that it's in there. It's like this. It's like uh, if if you meet a person. Let's say you meet Brandon back there, right? And let's say Brandon is here at New Philly for the next three years. And you have small group with Brandon. So you meet, meet him during the middle of the week. You have Sunday services with Brandon. You go out to dinner with Brandon. And you just spend all this time with him. And after three years, you're like, Brandon is my bull. We're like buddies. I know Brandon. Brandon knows me. And then Brandon, God calls him to return back to his home. He goes back to... What is it, States? Yeah, you're not Canadian, right? All right, good. Okay, now let's get. I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. I love Canada. Oh, Canada. And then it gets into the French. I don't, I don't know how to sing the rest of that. Um, let's say Brandon goes back home to America. And somebody asks you, do you know Brandon? And you say, yeah, I know Brandon. I know him. And then shortly after he leaves, he gets hooked up with a professional biographer. And the biographer writes a biography about Brandon's life. And then you get a hold of that book. And you skim right through it to the three years in which he spent in Korea. Because you're curious if he mentioned you in his book. So you start reading through those chapters where he covers his three years in Korea. And you find out all these things about him that you did not know. Or you had even forgotten about. Right? When you have this kind of biographical account, you're able to have a much deeper revelation of who that person is than even if you just spent three years straight with that person. You hear what I'm saying? Now, I'm not neglecting the uh, experience of the apostles. They had, they had an incredible knowledge of Jesus spending those three years with him. But even those three years, they did not really understand who Jesus was. And even when up to the day Jesus was about to be crucified, they didn't really know who Jesus was. You know? But we have these gospel accounts. It gives us insight Not only to what happened, but why it happened. How it happened. So the Gospels, it shows us Jesus much more than being able to meet him today for just an hour coffee or something like that. We also have the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is also all about Jesus. When you read the book of Acts, what do you think the book of Acts is all about? These are not just the acts of the apostles. These are the acts of Jesus. Who appears to the persecutor Saul on the road to Damascus? Who appears there? Jesus appears. Right? Saul is persecuting Christians, arresting them, putting them to death, watching Stephen get stoned to death. And then Jesus just shows up on the road and Saul's life is radically transformed. Right? Uh, the New Testament letters, all these things, it's about Jesus. So through all of the rest of the New Testament, we have a clearer picture of who Jesus is than if we were able to have physical meeting with him today. But there's more. 
We have the rest of the Bible, a good majority of the Bible, which is actually in the Old Testament. But you might be like, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. That's that the law is there, the Ten Commandments, that's there to judge us, make us feel guilty so that we will run to Jesus and find salvation. And in certain hermeneutics, in certain interpretation techniques for the Bible, they actually disregard the Old Testament altogether. So, for example, in dispensationalism, you know, dispensationalism, you know, it's good in the sense that they contribute a view of national Israel that provides a future hope for the nation of Israel. But their interpretation techniques that they use to get that uh, belief, they have a very literal approach towards Scripture. So they believe that if God gives a promise and prophecy for national Israel, then it is locked down to national Israel and it must be interpreted literally at all times. Now, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I believe that certain passages here, we as a church, we inherit. But I don't think we inherit all of it. Just to be clear, that, you know, I just did my final paper on the future of ethnic Israel. Uh, does the Bible teach a future for ethnic Israel? Is there a future salvation for Israel in the future? In the future, future, salvation, future. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like repeating myself. And uh, and anyway, I won't get into my paper, but I study different interpretation uh, approaches. Uh, there's a redemption framework called covenant theology. There's dispensationalism. There's new covenant theology. Anyway, you don't have to know all this, right? What you all have to understand is the Old Testament is not just all about the law. It's about Jesus. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, there were two disciples. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are two disciples that were wondering about all of what the crazy women said. They were like talking about, well, those crazy women, they, they said they saw Jesus, but I don't believe them because they're women. And they were walking on the road to this town called Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them on that road. And the Bible says that Jesus opened up the scriptures. Now, what does that mean? To us, it means the Bible, but to them... It meant the Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament back then. Jesus just got resurrected. All right. Not a single letter of Paul was written yet. Not a single gospel account was written down yet. And they certainly didn't have revelation. Okay. He opens up the Old Testament scripture. And the Bible says, beginning with Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. When they say Moses, that often talks about the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see that? They had the greatest Bible study of all time. And it was all about Jesus. These two disciples are thinking, well, what about the story of Jonah? What about the story? And Jesus is like, Jonah? Yeah, that's easy. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three, three, three days, three nights. So, you know, I resurrect on the third day. And, All right, well, what about, uh, what about Daniel? They're like, remember, remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got, they got thrown in the fire? Remember that fourth dude? 
the king Nebuchadnezzar was like, looks like a son of the gods. That was Jesus. Now, he, he was actually speaking in third person because he didn't reveal to them that it was him. He kept talking about Jesus. And then when they broke bread, it was revealed to them that it was Jesus. And then Jesus bounced. He had a crazy body. It's one of those like Star Trek kind of bodies. You can just go from one place to another. Yeah, I won't get into that. The whole Old Testament is all about Jesus. Although we cannot physically see Jesus today and meet with him. I'm telling you right now, our generation, we have access to the most clearest picture of who Jesus is than in any other generation in history. We have access not only to the Bible, we have access to theology books, we have access to Christian doctrine, we have access to the internet, we have access to blogs. Some blogs are net, they're, they're not good for you. Make sure you eat the meat throughout the bone. But we have incredible access, and not only that, man, we have incredible access to these huge revivals and moves of God where Jesus shows up. And Jesus starts healing people. Jesus, Jesus comes with the, uh, uh, the gift of prophecy. The, you know, book of Revelation says, let me get this right. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay. When that spirit of prophecy comes, that means Jesus is in, in that place. Our generation, we have incredible access to see Jesus as he really is. Now, I want to present to you the Aristotelian view of God. Now, you may not know what Aristotle taught, and before my philosophy class, I didn't have any clue either. But Aristotle's view of God has permeated Christian theology for many generations. Now, uh... Plato also has had a lot of effect. Um, Plato is probably more like Gnostic, more Buddhist, you know. It's all about knowledge, you know. But Aristotle's view of God was like this. Aristotle believed that God is the perfect being. And he is, right? God is the perfect being and he is so perfect that he cannot and he will not get involved with the affairs of the earth because man is imperfect man is polluted man is corrupt so god if god speaks we won't, we wouldn't even be able to understand him anyway cuz we're so corrupt we can't understand the speech that comes out of a perfect being and god will never come down to touch us because if we, if if he's so holy and perfect if he touches us that means it may pollute his being his nature so aristotle believed that god is this high being that is far off and this view this aristotelian view of god has infected systematic christian theology for many generations now i didn't really know this until i had a discussion with pastor benjamin and he started to draw it out but it's absolutely true now if you study calvin Calvin was uh, influenced by Aristotle as well. Now, y'all know I, I honor Calvin, and you know how much I appreciate his contributions. But Calvin's view of sovereignty had the idea of immutability, meaning that 
once God wills something, He cannot be moved from what that which He has decreed and willed. It's the immutable will of God. And if you want, if you read the uh, Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, there's you know all kinds of statements about God's sovereignty. Now, why am I mentioning Aristotle and Calvin and uh, different views of God's sovereignty? Why am I viewing? Why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning this. Uh, look here. It ain't nothing happening with John Michael right now. Just look here. <laughs> Why am I mentioning this? Because it has affected much of Western Christianity's thinking and view of God. You know, in a lot of our churches, let me get more mic. A lot of our churches, we believe that God. It's holy. God is perfect. God is sovereign. And He is. Don't get me wrong. He's, he is all these things. But in believing and emphasizing that aspect of God, which is an Aristotelian influence, in believing that, we tend to grow up in the church feeling distant from this God. And oftentimes, we resort to religion to get close to this God. Why? Because He's so holy, and I'm such a sinner. I better try much harder to not sin if I'm going to get closer to this God. And so we come to church, and we repent of our sins. And we feel down on ourselves. And we feel like hypocrites before God. And that when God speaks, it's simply God disappointed. God who is this holy, perfect being. But remember what I established before? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Around the time Jesus appeared on the earth, Aristotle's logic had already permeated even Judaism. So the Pharisees had a certain view of God. Now, I will venture to, I will submit that maybe the Old Testament, the way it was written, also maybe have contributed to their view of God. But I think Greek philosophy also had a big view, big influence on Jewish leaders' view of God. And what were the Jewish leaders' view of God? It was very Aristotelian, right? God is perfect. God is holy. And uh, check me out. I'm also holy because I do all these religious things. I fast. I tithe. I do all these holy things. I help the poor. And look at me and look at you, you tax collector. Look at you, you prostitute. Look at you, you fisherman. You uneducated fisherman. You need me to get close to God. And so these Jewish leaders... Continually put all these laws, all these man-made laws, all these interpretations of the laws that were already given and put it on the backs of all the Jewish people. And the Jewish people felt just more and more religion, more and more oppressed, more and more distant from God. It was into this setting Jesus arrived. And when Jesus spoke about God, do you know how many times that Jesus used the word holy to describe God? According to Steve Traw, right, uh, he's a good friend of ours, 
Jesus only used the word holy to describe God twice throughout the New Testament. Two times. Do you know what other term that Jesus used to describe God that he used quite frequently? It was the word father. It was father. Two, over 200 times, God refers to, Jesus refers to God as father, but only twice he refers to God as holy. Now, does that mean that God is not holy or God is saying, Jesus is saying that he's, uh, God is less holy? No, 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 no. Jesus is coming into this Aristotelian, this, this particular culture, and he's attacking the mindsets. He's trying to shift the thinking of the, of the Jews of that day. Shift their perspective of who God is. And he's saying, yeah, God is holy, but let me tell you something. God is Father. God is love. He's more interested in the spirit of the law rather than the letter of it. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. We need to be filled by the spirit of God. And I will give you the spirit of God just like it was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And you will walk in my ways. You will walk in God's ways. But not only just the words of Jesus, the most convincing evidence that God is not anything like Aristotle said he is, is in the actions of Jesus. Okay. Do you know where Jesus was born? Jesus was born. In a nasty, smelly manger. Now, you guys, I know you don't like the bathrooms in this building. It's not the most nicest. But hallelujah, at least there's a seat. And it flushes. Okay. But imagine Mary and Joseph, they looked for, uh, they, they didn't, they didn't make, the manger was not their first choice. They went looking around the inn, but you know, all these people were traveling at that time, so all the inns were booked. So they ended up in this little dingy farm, this, this barn, and they put Jesus in a feeding trough or something like that. We don't, you know, it's something like that. Like that either horses or cows or pigs ate out of. Jesus is placed in this nasty little manger and he is born with all of this social stigma because remember in jewish culture adultery was forbidden and so mary's going around saying no i didn't have sex with any man (laughs) did you have sex with joseph no it was not joseph it was holy spirit how many people do you think believe mary when G- after Jesus was born, Jesus is running around. What do you think other, other parents were thinking? Other mothers were thinking. They're like, look at that little devil child running around. That child, that, that illegitimate child. That child. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm sure they weren't nice about it, you know. Jesus had to grow up with that kind of social stigma. Now, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Jesus' birth. 
if Aristotle is right, God, God wouldn't have been birthed at all onto the earth. God, if, if God did anything, he'll come out of the sky doing something big and grand and he will make sure that we don't touch him. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it breaks through all of that and says, this is not who God is. This is who God is. God is not ashamed to be born in a manger. God is not ashamed to identify with your social stigmas. Consider Jesus' uh, ministry, his public ministry. Back in Jewish times, leprosy was a disease that not only had physical uh, physical uh, consequences, it had social consequences. Because leprosy was any kind of skin disease that was contagious. So they would, if you had a skin disease that was contagious, they would make sure that there was a system in which people did not touch you. So even if like you have a daughter and you, and you you love your daughter and you're, you, you, you hug your daughter all the time and you just hold your daughter so precious, the moment your daughter has leprosy, you kick your daughter out. And if your daughter ever comes around looking for food, you say, unclean, unclean, unclean. That was what was required by the Jewish culture. All right, so you have to understand what lepers have to go through. Not only do they have to deal with all this nasty, yucky stuff on their skin, they have to deal with the heartbreak of being rejected by their own friends and family and having to deal with the fact that they can never return. They can never be loved like they used to be loved. The only people that will love them is other lepers. Okay? Into that Jewish culture, Jesus arrives and people bring the sick to him. And lepers walk up to him. And what does Jesus do? The image of the invisible God, what does he do? <gasps> lepers! I am holy! Stay away from me! You are unclean! Because in Jewish culture, you touch the leper, you became unclean. Ceremonially, you were unclean. So you were, even if you didn't get the disease, there was like a, rich, like a ritual you had to go through to become clean again. No, you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, you have leprosy, don't you? Come here. And the, you, know, the, the, you can see the disciples just going, whoa, <laughs> I don't want none of that. <laughs> Everybody's like, Five, six yards away from Jesus, Jesus reaches out his, his hand. He touches the leper. And he says, be clean. Aristotle, if he was walking around with Jesus and his disciples, Aristotle would have been disgusted. What? This is the son of God? He's touching a leper. You are not the son of God. God is holy. God is perfect. God will never touch a leper. But yet we have Jesus reaching out his hand and touching the leper. At the end of Jesus' public ministry, you know what Jesus did? He told his disciples, take off your shoes. Because I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to wash your feet. 
<laughs> Maybe if your hagwon uh, boss came up to you and said tomorrow, take off your shoes. I'm going to wash your feet. You'd be like, yeah, wash it right now. I was waiting for this day. <laughs> I hate you. Wash my feet. Maybe that's the way you might feel towards your boss, but to somebody that you hold precious in your heart and you look up to and you honor your mentor, your teacher, for that person to wash your feet, it will be just, it will blow your mind. I'll be like, no, no, Lord. No, Rabbi. You can't touch my, my, my feet are nasty. You know, and Peter was like, like, please don't touch my feet, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, if I, don't, if I don't wash you, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part to do with me. So Peter said, all right. Then wash my whole body. <laughs> and Jesus is like, Peter, you're crazy. Just take off your shoes. If Aristotle is right in his image of God and his view of God, then what is Jesus doing washing his disciples' feet? But I think the, 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 the greatest, the greatest contrast to Aristotle's view of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus, God looked upon the problem of sin and death on the earth. And he did not sit on his high heavenly throne looking down and pondering what can we do about this problem. Mm -mm. The Bible says that even before the creation of the earth, God had a plan. God had a redemption plan for man. And you see, the cross was not just an idea that God got just on a whim. It was planned by God. All the way, I don't know when, a long time ago. God planned it out and he executed it. And he actually did it. He actually sent his son, Jesus, in the form of a man. To come down into our sins, into our demonizations, into our physical illnesses, into our social outcasts, into our problems. And he dwelt among us. And he said, you know what? I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to restore all of this through my blood. And then he went to the cross and he shed his blood so that your sins can be forgiven. Aristotle's God sits in heaven doing nothing about man's problem. But the biblical God, the God that is described here in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the main character of this book. His name is Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
So I don't know what kind of view of God you have in your minds. But the one true God, he left his throne, shed himself of glory, came down to the earth, dwelt among us, and then died a criminal's death to say, I told you I love you. To look upon your problems and say, there's no problem here. I shed my blood so that you can be healed. To look at your trauma. To look at the hurts that you went through in your childhood. And you go, God, you don't understand what I went through. How could you let this happen to me? God, you're so distant. God, you don't care. And Jesus comes and says, no, I do care. I'm not just sitting up in the throne doing, doing, no, doing nothing about it. I'm not just looking and observing. I came. God the Father says, I sent my son. I gave him up for you all. Because I love you. Because I have a real love. I have a real desire for a relationship with the people I've created. If you're in here today and you feel distant from God, I'm telling you right now, your view of God may have been more influenced by Western philosophy than it was by the word of God. Because if you want the true view of God, you're not going to find it in Aristotle's writings. Aristotle died not knowing his creator and maker. Jesus claimed to be the creator and maker. And he died as well. But death could not hold him down. And all the eyewitnesses of that time testify that Jesus indeed rose again from the dead. And he is the one that is seated in heaven, making intercession for us today. And by his spirit, he is the God who is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. He dwells among us. And for every Christian that is willing to repent of their self-driven ways, their independent ways, those who repent of that pattern and begin to be led by the Spirit of God, they will be called sons of God. And those sons of God that put to death their flesh, they manifest the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in everything that they do. Proving to an unbelieving world that Jesus is truly living, alive, and real. You know, we, His church, we are the greatest living example that Jesus is real. That Jesus is alive. Our lives could not have been transformed. Ted's life could not have been transformed. My wife's life could not have been transformed. Unless Jesus is alive. I'll tell you right now, that tomb is empty. And they have never been able to find the body of Jesus. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there will come a day in which he will judge the living and the dead. He will be the judge for all mankind. And my call to you today is, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, come 
take his invitation. You don't have to work to get it. The Bible says that the gift of everlasting life is a gift. Freely given. Not as a result of works so that no man, no man shall boast. And I believe today here, God is calling many of you to take up the gift of everlasting life by putting your faith in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And close your eyes right now.